Hello and welcoming you after a weekend when, not for the first time, the haters will say La Noia or boredom won the day at San Remo. I'm of course referring to the highlight of Italian pop culture of every year, San Remo Music Festival and the name of the victorious song by Angelina Mango. And speaking of female singers, also after a Sunday when a Taylor Swift touchdown was the biggest story at the Super Bowl. That was her private jet arriving in Las Vegas from Tokyo. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will attempt to stave off your boredom and certainly give you a carbon neutral overview of the last week's events in professional cycling. Joining me today is a still probably wounded Detroit Lion, I fear. His team having lost in the playoffs to the 49ers, who went on to lose to the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday. It is the Motown maestro, Ajay Dezao La Mondiale's Larry Warbass, who started his season in Provence at the weekend. And Larry, I was also going to say in your intro, the most promiscuous man in podcasting. You're a disgrace, Larry. <laughs> Who have you? Which podcast? Tell Sorry. the listeners which pod. Where, where else can they hear, hear you this week? Well, I was a guest on the Bobby and Jens podcast uh, the other week, but, you know, I, I would say hosting versus guessing is different. Uh, you, you, know? can, you can try and butter know. us up as much as you like. Um, Larry, I said you debuted your season <laughs> um, at the Tour of Provence at the weekend. I mean, were you riding for Ager Dezel or Decathlon Ager Dezel La Mondiale there, or were you moonlighting for, for someone else? <laughs> no, no, I was with my team Decathlon Ager Dezel La Mondiale there, yeah. And, um, well, you rode pretty well as well. well. We'll discuss that later in the podcast. As indeed, your team is riding pretty well, has started the season pretty well. Also joining us today is someone who the last time on the podcast had the audacity to mention track racing, two strike and you're out policy here. So he's on very thin ice today. He's a journalist. He did the last week of the Tour de France with us last year. And he'll be making regular appearances with some special assignments over the next few months. It is young Richard Abraham. I'm going to call you young Richard Abraham because you might be the youngest real host, not as a plastic host like Larry, um, the youngest uh, real host I've ever had on the podcast. Oh, hi, Richard, how are thank, you? Thank you. I'm good, thanks. Are you younger than Larry? Uh, I don't Larry's much. an old rider. How old are you? Yeah, Larry's... age is relative in whatever cycling sphere you belong to. Perhaps. You're a young podcaster. But I'd I would be, I'd be eyeing up my retirement career if i were a rider i think let's say larry how are you uh, how old are you now larry i'm 33 oh, snap yeah many many summers left in you so are you older or younger the same oh same you're eyeing your retirement come on man give me a little bit more credit <laughs> We're going to be talking a little bit about... Let's hope we got a few more years. Yeah, let's hope so. We're going to be talking a bit about retirement later in the podcast, as indeed it's been a bit of a theme um, throughout the the off-season, the winter, as it's often a theme of the winter in professional cycling. Chaps, we have got so much to get through in the news roundup. Um, So much racing on the moment. Too much racing, chaps. I mean, Larry, um, joking aside, you can only race in one place for one team at a time, but um, it is tough to keep up, certainly for the likes of Richard and me. Um, This week was the start of a period where there are multiple stage races every week, multiple one-day races every week. Um, Yeah, quite difficult to stay on top of it all. Um, But we will get the Tour de Provence out of the way immediately, mindful that we'll return to that that race in part two. And, well, Larry, it's an easy one because Mads Pedersen 
basically cleaned up, winning the first three stages <laughs> and finishing fifth on the last day when Tom van Asbroek of Israel Premier Tech reigned in a rainy Arle. Pedersen, of course, took the GC instantly, four minutes and 20 seconds clear of our own Lawrence Warbass, who was 18th, Larry. Just snuck into the top 20 there. Any UCI points for that, Larry? Three UCI points. Are you aware of that um, before the final uh, stage? I mean, I mean, no. Well, I mean, to be honest, I didn't think I would be in the top 20 uh, on the GC because... Uh, yeah, I mean, it just split in the crosswinds, and then, um, yeah, I mean, I'd been riding the front the first day, and then the second day, it was torrential, terrible conditions, and uh, so, yeah, I didn't really, GC wasn't, yeah anything I was thinking about, but then, yeah, I don't know, we were in the front of the crosswinds on the last day, and we ended up getting a lot of time on the second group, so... I think the entire group uh, that I was in ended up being the top 20 on GC. So, um, so yeah, but no, it's not something that I would have thought about. It was more, uh, you know, we had other guys on the team that, you know, you're really looking more for points and stuff. So Not to be sniffed at, Larry. There's so, yeah. three, three UCI points. Who knows what difference they could make at the end of the, well, hopefully not for your team, at the end of the relegation cycle. Um, yeah. Tour of Columbia next. Another race we're going to revisit in more detail later on. Race consisted of six stages. They won by Messrs Gaviria, Tejada, Osorio, Cavendish, Carapaz, and Restrepo. In the GC, Rodrigo Contreras, the former Astana rider, now representing the new Colombia team, narrowly took the honours ahead of Carapaz. Also, uh, the Vuelta Colombia chaps, we had an important announcement, something which, I'll, I'll be honest, I was under the misapprehension Prehension had already happened a few months earlier, namely EF Education Easy Post talisman Rigoberto Uran announcing that he will retire at the end of the season at age 37. Chaps, I felt that he'd announced that months ago, but I would obviously jump ahead. Um, did you, Richard? Did no, that ring bells? It, did you think? It passed me by if it had been hinted at, but no. Well, he's definitely now going to retire. Um, Around, of course, won stages at the Tour, the Giro at the Vuelta. He won the GP Quebec. Um, in fact, he won 14 races in total in his career. He also finished runner-up overall in the Giro twice and once in the Tour de France. That was in 2017. He was also second in the Olympic road race, um, of course, infamously, some would say, in 2012 in London. Perhaps as much for his victories at home, though, Rigo has embedded himself in the nation's affections as an entertainer, reality TV star, Pied Piper for the best generation of Colombian riders. He's already put his name to an 80-episode TV series about his life, his own clothing brand. He also has uh, Gran Fondos, restaurants, and he will retire. It's pretty safe to say, chaps, with the biggest Instagram following of any professional cyclist, whopping 2.3 million at the time of recording, a mere 277.8 million shy of Taylor Swift. Um, the most followed rider on, well, in professional cycling, chaps. Rigoberto Uran. If I'd thought about that, I probably I might have got there in the end. But um, I, I don't think I'm omitting anyone. Um, I think the the next, the, the the closest are the likes of sort of Pogacar and there are a couple of others in the one point something millions. But where does where does Peter Sagan sit in that list? Not too sure. Not too sure. Um, 
Peter Sagan, I saw he has been racing. Has he been racing or preparing for a mountain bike race at the weekend? He was looking pretty fit, I thought, actually. Um, I was glad to note. Um, Richard, maybe you can, while I'm telling the listeners about Oman, you can um, do some due diligence on Instagram followings. Um, next stop is Oman. Um, that race will finish on Wednesday morning, the Tour of a Man. Stage winners so far there, Caleb Ewan of Jayco Alula, Finn Fisher Black of UAE Team Emirates, who incidentally had also won the Mus- Muscat Classic a couple of days earlier. Uh, sued out Quick Step's own baby phenom of earlier of this early season, 19-year-old Paul Manier, and um, Maori Capio of Akea B&B Hotels. Time of recording, Fisher Black held or holds a three-second lead on GC, and that's with the final day showdown on Green Mountain still to come. Another stage race last week in Turkey, the Tour of Antalya. I won't give you all the stage winners, but I will tell you that it was a very encouraging week for Italy, Italians. Their riders taking a clean sweep of the final podium. And 21-year-old Davide Piganzoli of Polti Cometa triumphing. Piganzoli is from Morbegno in the Valtellina, that is Mortirolo country for anyone au fait with or interested in that sort of thing. Chaps, final stage race to tell you about the first one on the 2024 Women's World Tour calendar, the UAE Tour. Four stages, the first two won by Lorena Webus. The Queen stage won by the Queen of the Race in Waiting, Lotta Kopecky. And on the final day, an upset with Amber Crack of FDJ Suez taking only the second win of her pro career. Um, Kopecky winning the mountain stage to Jebel Hafit, I suppose. That was more of what we saw at the Tour de France fam last year. Um, she was very strong on Tourmalet last year, of course. Not noted as a climber, but um, Richard, a lot of people talking about you know how she's becoming more of a climber, becoming a, the sort of wild fan art. Um, of the women's peloton not that we always need to compare female riders to male riders but um, another another thing that struck me about women's racing over the next few months next year or so is that courses are going to start getting harder and harder so Kopecky might become better at climbing but that doesn't necessarily mean that she'll start winning Tour de France Giro d'Italia and so on and so forth yeah I think um, what we saw with Kopecky last year from from the Tour de France right through to the Worlds was that she, as much as we don't really know what kind of a rider she is, she's not a specialist. Um, so, yeah, I think I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more surprises from her this year. Yeah, where the, the women's scene is, is always so interesting just because the whole scene changes, is still changing at a much faster rate than the men's scene uh, i always get the impression that you know the races themselves are going to change a lot over the next few years and that's going to alter the landscape quite significantly um next chaps one day races i'll go quickly the vuelta a la region murcia was somewhat dominated i would say larry by your decathlon ag 2 teammate ben o'connor who attacked on the alto cresta del gallo uh, 15 kilometers from the finish and solo to victory that was on Saturday, the same day on the other side of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, also in this rider's first race of the season, it was Ben, Co- ben O'Connor's in Murcia. Um, Remco Evenepoel did Remco Evenepoel things at the Fiera Champions Classic, getting bored with 55 kilometres to go and taking off for some me time, for some Remco time. 
Here's final margin of victory there, a mere 1 minute 48 seconds. More on that later in the show. Then, finally, rounding off the roundup, two more days, or two more one-dayers in Spain, the Clásica de Almería, won by Olaf Coy on Sunday. And then, yesterday, that was Monday, the rather magnificent Clásica de Jaén Paraíso Interior. The, this race is, well, it's fast building a reputation as a bit of a Spanish Strade Bianche. Uh, the province of Jaén, of course, home to 60 million olive trees, accounting for between 20 and 25% of the world's olive oil. Larry, I seem to remember a riveting conversation with Joe Dombrowski about this at the Vuelta a couple of years ago. Um, the race featured a pretty much chance-ending mechanical for Wout van Aert at a crucial moment. Shades of last year's World Gravel Championships there. But we also saw a very fine team performance from your team, Larry, courtesy of Nicolas Prodom and Bastien Tronchon, who was second. However, the emphatic winner in the end was the increasingly impressive Spanish national champion, Oyer Lascano of Movistar, who, like your team, Larry, uh, had a very good start to the season. Um, Larry, you went racing yesterday. Did you get to watch your teammates strutting their stuff in um, among the olive trees? Among the olive groves in Jaén? No, I actually, um, oh, I had to go, yeah, do some checkup for my car. So unfortunately, I missed it. But uh, I just was trying to follow the pro cycling stats, uh, like live feed. Um, but you know, I also have to say it's been significantly more difficult to watch bike racing this year after the fall of uh, the GCN Plus app. So. I'm still trying to decide what to do as a uh, solution. Um, but yeah. Larry, that was the first well, significant race that's going to combine road and, and gravel. Of course, there are a few of them on the calendar nowadays. Um, I've heard a couple of riders talk about how these races, so Jaén and Strade Bianche, are going to be important testing grounds because, of course, we've got a, a white road stage in the Tour de France and teams will be testing out equipment and so on and so forth at those two races, Jaén and Strade Bianche. And much talk about gravel, knobbly tyres, that sort of thing at team camps this winter? No, I mean, you know, I mean... I think it's just, uh, I mean, there's no way you could be riding like knobby tires, but yeah, I guess you'd be thinking about, you know, going to a 30, maybe even some teams 32, but I would say most teams would probably be on 30s and even some maybe on 28s, you know, it's like yesterday there was something like 17 or 18k of gravel. Um, it looked like Jumbo, I don't know, just from photos, it looked like they were on maybe 30s. Um, but, you know, it's not like a just ton. From, just uh, from photos, just from gravel. just from the negatives. What a wonderfully lo-fi way uh, of... If only we could go back to that lo-fi way of following professional cycling. Just examining still yeah, photos. I, mean, I, I, I try to look at uh, all the little details, so yeah. Um, I mean, I'd be surprised if I was wrong, but yeah. Um you know, I think it's just, it's not like there are crazy details, uh, but, you know, probably just, yeah, maybe maybe some teams would try to ride like uh, more puncture-proof tires, but, you know, that comes at a big cost too. So I would say really the only difference would be like, yeah, 30 or 32s or 28s. Um, so yeah. do, you, do you think, Larry, it would be, it'd be fair to say that more riders have got gravel bikes at home that they're riding a bit more regularly? So the idea of, using these races like to actually prepare riding on the gravel is maybe 
it's important in a how do you function in a race context, but a bit less important for like how do you handle a bike on that kind of stuff. I mean, I would say that like of the road pros, very few guys have gravel bikes at home. You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe like 10% of the guys. I don't think like a ton of guys are doing uh, gravel at home because, you know, like our training so specific. Um, but, you know, the funny thing to me was like last year when I did a Unbound and, you know, I had like, you know, the full out gravel bike with, I think I had 40C tires, you know, you know, knobby gravel tires is I realized, I was like, this is actually way easier than Strada Bianca. Because Strada Bianca, you're on, like, a road bike with, like, you know, 28 or 30 tires, and uh, it's really loose gravel. So, um, yeah, it's kind of funny because people do talk a lot about gravel. Now, I mean, I heard that the Gravel World Championships was quite a bit more technical last year, but uh, for the non-technical gravel races, actually, like, Strada is, like... uh, more challenging to for bike in terms of bike handling it, so it's kind of interesting. It, was, it was yeah. interesting chaps that the the serenissima gravel race in the veneto last autumn quite a lot of the teams i spoke about this at the time quite a lot of the teams who entered just didn't have gravel bikes with them uh, they you know their teams kind of couldn't be bothered to send gravel bikes or it was just logistically too challenging to get them there and we sort of saw these riders Akea were one of the teams we saw them at the start and they were sort of having fun poked at them by other riders on the start line um you know people sort of saying good luck chaps you know see you in the douches and um, in fact they went very well um i mean obviously it depends a l- the there the, are the big differences there can be a big sort of variation in terms of uh, easy gravel and gnarly gravel can't the larry but sometimes yeah. a road bike setup seems to <clears throat> seems to suit pretty well particularly if there are long road sections between the gravel 100 percent. i think you lose way too much um on like the road sections if you have like a real gravel setup um and then yeah, if you're like good at bike handling, I don't think it's going to cost you too much to have a road set up uh, or closer to a road set up on a gravel situation. But yeah, I mean, like I have to say, uh, yeah, Strada Bianca is no joke in terms of bike handling. And I mean, obviously we saw that last year with Tom Pidcock was just like, you know, for a guy who's such a good bike handler, you know, that was, he was just a level above, um, you know, in terms of, you know, you, on the downhill, he's going to take, take like... 30 seconds each downhill on uh, the guys that he's with so so yeah you know it's interesting there's a huge range that officially concludes the news roundup but larry before we end part one it would be remiss of me i didn't actually ask you about your super bowl experience i mentioned the super bowl mentioned taylor swift of course mentioned the kansas city chiefs and the fact that you were probably a detroit line but you know as a a sort of you know uh, uh, died in the wall american (laughs) um your Super Bowl experience. Tell us about it. Uh, I mean, Captain I America. Say, I should have said. Uh, Americans will be ashamed of me that I actually didn't watch anything about the Super Bowl, and I actually only knew that it happened because I saw some things on Twitter from like sixteen hours before, and I was like, "Wow!" Didn't even realize that the Super Bowl was, you know, the day before. So, yeah, I was not even aware that the Super Bowl happened on Sunday until Monday morning. Haven't um, watched any haven't yeah. watched any bike racing, haven't watched the Super Bowl. A terrible candidate to be a guest on the show this week. However, <laughs> hopefully, sorry. hopefully 
you were paying attention in the Tour de Provence at the weekend. We'll find out in just a minute. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel. Learn the language of your choice at the pace that's right for you. Now, Babbel is an app, so you can choose when and where you want to learn, and even just 10 minutes a day will get you on the road to learning a new language. Right now, Babbel is offering all of our listeners an additional six-month free with the purchase of every six-month subscription. You just need the promo code CYCLE24. That's CYCLE24. Go to babbel.com slash play and use the promo code CYCLE24 to get an additional six months for free. There are so many different ways to learn with Babbel, language lessons, podcasts and games, and they all help to put in place the building blocks of the language you want to learn. And you can choose from 14 different languages, including English, if it's not your first language. Maybe you listen to the cycling podcast to brush up on your English skills, or maybe not, I don't know. But by the summer, by the time the Grand Tours come around, you could be well on the way to learning Italian, French or Spanish, or one of the other languages, if you please. The one thing about Babbel is that it's fun and it's flexible. And most importantly, you're learning language that you can use in real life right from the start, not just computer generated phrases that don't really mean anything. You can also avoid a visit from the pronunciation police because the advanced speech recognition system helps you to learn to speak your new language out loud and gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's a bit like having a language coach in your pocket. And each time you use Babbel, you can pick up exactly where you left off. So Babbel's offering an additional six-month subscription for free with the purchase of every six-month subscription. You just need the promo code CYCLE24. Go to babbel.com slash play. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash play and use the promo code CYCLE24. We'll put all of those details in the show notes. Babbel, your guaranteed path towards speaking a new language. Now it's back to the multilingual Daniel Freiber. Well, gentlemen, as teased in part one, we are going to discuss some of the key talking points of the very busy week in professional cycling. A lot of races last week, as we've already said. Larry, you were in action at the the Mads Pedersen-dominated Tour of Provence. Um, watching Mads Pedersen at the Tour of Provence, it... This, this will be lost as well on you, Larry, unfortunately. Um, but it brought to mind something I read recently about the footballer. The, the, the greatest footballer of all time, by some estimates, Pele. And a poet once remarked that Pele seemed to drag the field with him like an extension of his own skin. Um, Mads Pedersen dragged the, the road, the peloton, everything with him at the Tour of Provence like an extension of his own skin. It looked a bit like that, particularly on stage two when he took matters very much into his own hands. Um, he took burn through his own team. And I don't know if, if the feeling in the peloton, Larry, was that that particular day turned out to be harder than people were anticipating. Um, because the Tour of Provence, on paper, didn't really have a sort of queen stage. It wasn't a mountainous edition. But that second stage, um, it really did sort of detonate, or, or it was detonated um, in various different ways and by different riders. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, in general, after like seeing Besage, everyone knew that, you know, Mads Peterson was like the big favorite and, and Trek had a super good team for him, um, you know, at uh, at Provence. So, you know, first day he won the sprint, 
pretty handily. But already, like, that day, uh, I mean, it poured rain the whole day. You know, I mean, I was right in the front, and I literally did the entire day in my rain jacket. And even while riding the front, I was getting cold in a rain jacket with plenty of clothing under. So I was like, wow, I couldn't imagine how cold it must have been in the Peloton. And by the end of the race, you know, after, like, you know, there was a big acceleration to catch the break right at the end, I, you know, drifted to the back of the group. And, I mean, there were guys just exploding everywhere. And and so I was like, wow, you know, obviously the cold had, like, this huge impact. Um, but, you know, in the sprint trek, they really showed how good they were with, like, their lead out and everything. And, you know, he tried to let Kirsch go. And then, anyway, he still, he crushed the sprint mads. Um and then, and then, yeah, the next day um, was even colder and with even more rain. And so, to be honest, it was like, I would say the conditions made at least half the race. Because the course was hard enough, but it wasn't anything crazy. You know, it was something like 2,400, 2,500 meters of climbing. Um, and, yeah, it was more just everyone was freezing you know it was probably i would have to say it was in the top 10 coldest days of my career um and you know i started the race with i had a a wool base layer arm warmers uh another like sort of winter gilet under my jersey jersey uh rain jacket and that was how i started i started to get cold i put a thermal jacket on top of that so I had, you know, something like five layers on and I was still just shivering, even to the point where we, we ended up riding. We just, we were just, the Peloton was on the left side of the road. We would ride on the right side of the road just to like be in the wind and pedal because like uh, we were that cold, you know? So, I mean, everyone was shaking and uh, yeah, we hit the last climb and then it was kind of like who had legs slash didn't die in terms of cold and yeah i think mads also larry yeah. just um if i can interject there in in those conditions when you find yourselves or when you find yourself in those conditions um knowing how you have on occasion taken inspiration from mr david goggins um are you not getting are you not you're getting a kind of kind of sick thrill out of that no, I think I'll be honest. No. I, I, I was I, I kind of forgot to remind myself of David Goggins uh, that day. So I was in I was in a, in not the best place for a while. Um, but I wouldn't say that I got like, you know, I would say last year, the Giro, I got colder than I did this day. So luckily, we didn't have, you know, an hour long descent. But you know, there was like a 30k false flat downhill, which didn't help things. So, so anyway, I was trying to coach myself through it. But, uh, you know, I think I was still a uh, victim of the cold. And yeah, we hit this, uh, this last climb that was about, you know, I think it was about a 13 minute climb. And, uh, you know, that was where the race kind of exploded. And yeah, I think, you know, at the top, um, there was maybe a group of 20. And, I think, yeah, Mads just kind of realized that, you know, attack was the best defense and, uh, um, or offense was the best defense. And yeah, he ended up in a group up the road and one of my teammates was there, but he said there was really nothing they could do against Mads. Like he just realized, like he just had to set a high enough tempo and then no one could really attack. And so he just sat on the front and then, 
they were all just content to sit on his wheel. And apparently behind the group was riding, but they still lost a minute to the 10 guys in front. And, uh, yeah, then Mads just dusted them all in the sprint. So, um, that day he definitely seemed like he was a level above everyone. Um, obviously I didn't exactly see it play out, but, uh, the story sounded pretty impressive. So, um, so yeah. And then, you know, the last day, um, it was crosswinds and, and yeah, and they then, were also there. I think they had maybe six guys in the front or five guys track. And, and a depleted, Sorry. a very depleted peloton at that point already, Larry. Well, that was the other crazy thing was, yeah. Um, so I think because of this super cold, rainy stage, everyone was so cold. Um, and then when it's raining that hard and you're riding, you know, through the middle of farm fields, um, inevitably you eat a bit of cow shit off the roads and, uh, I think that uh, led to quite a few stomach bugs. So we lost our guy who was second on GC, uh, Bruno Armirai. He, yeah, he was puking the whole night. And uh, when we went to breakfast that morning, Kofidis, they also had a guy who had been puking the whole night. And um, and then when you, we got to the start of the race, it was just, yeah, teams were decimated. So I think there were 15 um, non-starters that third road stage. And uh, another at least 15 guys didn't finish. So, um, you know, those conditions really took a lot out of people. Larry, I mentioned in the news roundup, well, I mentioned a couple of your team's good performances so far um, in these first few weeks of the season. Ben O'Connor winning at Murcia and the two guys in high end. Um, Joking aside... You you did, and the team did look good in Provence as well. And um, just talk to us a bit about. We obviously checked in a few times in the in the winter. We talked about how there was a general sort of frustration, dissatisfaction with the victory hall last year of the team's victory hall and performances in general. And we talked about how the team would probably look to make a few adjustments and a few changes. Um, they seem to be working. Um, what have they been? Yeah, I mean, so I think um, one thing that made a big difference is we signed a lot of experienced guys. Um, so, you know, I would say the last couple of years we've signed really young guys. And, um, yeah, this year they, they brought in a lot of experience. And, you know, even if they're not necessarily the guys who are winning the race, they kind of like, you know, bring up the base level of the team. Um, so we're talking about, so give us some names. We're talking about... Um... Army Rai, um I mean okay, Sam Sam will hopefully, you know, obviously add to the winning tally. Um, you know, I mean Bosenhagen, he hasn't raced yet, but he'll be, you know, I think a really good addition. Um so yeah, I can't really think of the other guys, but you know, oh yeah, I mean there's like Lafay there. Anyway, we sign like a lot of guys with experience and really solid riders, and so I think that's one thing. I think another thing is, is, um, you know, having the new sponsor with the Cathlon that really brought in like fresh motivation for everyone, you know? Um, so everyone's really excited about the new equipment. Um, you know, Van Riesel, the bikes, they're amazing. And like the company's super motivated to do their best for us. And yeah, I mean, we can really, I mean, we can feel the difference and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just cool to have like a sponsor that's there and really present, you know, the engineers come to all the training camps and, um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I think it's just kind of like this cycle that, yeah, I don't know, it like the positive vibes, uh, you know, they kind of 
get the ball rolling and and yeah and then you know I think on top of that you know they tried to change the training a little bit of the training camps over the winter just to do a bit more like intensity so we trained pretty hard um and I think that was just sort of to get us really ready for I remember, the start of the I remember one of your um, appearances on the podcast at the end of a training camp you were a shell of a man Larry yeah, I can't remember whether that was the first. I or the think second I also podcast. got sick of that yeah. training camp and 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 was pretty dead. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you yourself, your training. Um, we know, we've heard you talk in the past about how you occasionally tweak things, and you're a, um, you know, you certainly are a keen and avid reader and researcher about training physiology. Um, any tweaks in what you're doing at the moment? Um, yeah, so I mean, like this winter, the one thing we really worked on was sort of just giving me the most solid base um, that we could. So, you know, the one thing that I'm always quite good at are tests. <laughs> so I always do, you know, big numbers and tests and non VO2 max tests, things like that. Um, and so the one thing is like I never do the numbers that I do in training or in tests in the race. And so for us, like the thing that we really have tried to work on is, um, yeah, just being able to do that at the end of races or so really like it's just been a lot of time um, really just working on my endurance. And so I do a lot of like high zone two kind of training, which I guess that's similar to what UAE is really big into. Um, and yeah, so I just spent a lot of time essentially just churning along at 300 watts. Uh, and yeah, then a little bit of intensity, not like a crazy amount of intensity beyond that. Um, and to be honest, yeah, I felt really, really strong in Provence. So that was really cool. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but hopefully it seems like it's going in the right direction. One more question before we move on. Um, what's your explanation for that, Larry? Um, the fact that you are like, uh, Eddie Merckx and Tade Pogacar's love child in training. And we, we know this of course, because you, you famously, you regularly pass Tade in training. Um, what, but what is your explanation? Because this is something you hear in a lot of sports. You, you do get, you you get athletes, whether footballers, um, cricketers, whatever, who are the best trainers, and then they don't necessarily translate that on the field, or they're not quite as good um, in competition. What would be your explanation? Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot more that goes into bike racing than just, uh, doing big numbers, you know? So like, I've known a lot of people that have done insane numbers and then, you know, they don't do anything in the race. And, you know, I think part of it is like, there is a huge mental aspect to racing. You know, it's extremely fatiguing to be bumping bars the entire day, fighting for position, you know, suffering under the rain, you know, or like, for example, this last day in Provence, you know, it was full gas crosswind. So then you have to be there exactly at the right moment. And then, you know, I mean, essentially you're just bumping bars, fighting with guys the entire day. And so it's rare that you're going to be able to do your best effort at the end of that. But, you know, I think some guys are better at dealing with that sort of stuff. But, you know, also, um, I guess it is probably the way that you train as well. You know, um, that, that makes, that makes a part of it too. So, um, so yeah, we'll see, you know, I think the team, one thing for me is they're like, you know, they just wanted me to sort of simplify, uh, my training. Cause maybe sometimes I make everything too complicated. And mm. so, yeah, that's what we've done this year. And I mean, so far it seems to be working, but yeah, you know, we'll have to wait and see, uh, uh, really once we get a little bit more into the season. Also, a lot of your energy is being expended on teammate duty, domestic 
duty. So it's really, oh, 100%. so it's really but no surprise. You that, can still feel okay. whether you are stronger or not, you know, even doing that, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, you know, hopefully it's not that I'm wasting too much energy podcast. <laughs> I'm slightly worried about your, you sent me what was a, an outline of a race program earlier this year and talking about, um, all of the sort of pesticides and other effluent that you've been um or that not necessarily you but the rest of the peloton has been unwittingly imbibing and people getting sick um i'm slightly concerned that much like last year your race program might get rejigged a few times and we know you're supposed to do the giro d'italia and you'll be wanting to go to altitude before the giro d'italia i just hope you know um i hope you don't have to do quite as many as how many race days was it last year? Eighty nine in the end. Pretty much ninety. It was like eighty nine. Yeah. yeah. Well. Apparently, I heard that like the UCI apparently contacted the team that I did too many race days. So You're being that was exploited. really fine. But no one, no one contacted me about this. So, so this was this was just the this was the rumor. Um, Larry, did you see, did you catch up on the story about Eusebio Unthwe, the Movistar team manager's suggestions about how to improve and change cycling, i.e. one suggestion was substitutes possibly in Grand Tours. Now, I I read not so much the original story, but I read the reaction to the, to the original story, sort of Eusebio being mocked. And I, I must admit, I felt pretty sorry for him because I... Yeah, Richard and I know how these things work. Um, Eusebio was in Colombia and there was there were a group of journalists there and what they probably did, he probably agreed to, you know, go off um, after lunch with these journalists, have a bit of a sit down with them and just sort of shoot the breeze. And it, the quotes were very much those of someone in my mind who was just shooting the breeze. Oh, I don't know. What could we do? Let's. Um, how about substitutes in Grand Tours, for example? And of course, this gets this gets transcribed immediately, and then it gets translated into five different languages. And it's as though this is Eusebio's <laughs> grand plan, his wonderful manifesto for the future of professional cycling. And he, he probably didn't intend it in that way. Um, it was literally the first thing that came into his head. I would suggest. However, um, any thoughts? Right. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I read it and I was like, oh, that's, I mean, those aren't bad ideas. And I was honestly more surprised to see that, like, he seems to be somewhat forward thinking because, you know, I mean, he's been in the team, uh, or I mean, he's been in the sport longer than maybe anyone uh, currently in terms of, like, managers, stuff like that. Um, so to really be open to ideas like that and to change to me, that's cool. You know, I mean, I mean, I respect that because I'm like, well, here's a guy who, you know, he's been here forever and he's not like, well, this is always, this is how we've we've always done it. And this is how we should keep doing it. It's like, yeah, why not change some things? You know, whether, I mean, whatever, you know, you can hammer out the details later, but I mean, that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'm not against having substitutions in grand tours or, you know, obviously you'd have to like really hammer out the details, but uh, um, yeah, you know, I mean, shortening grand tours, having substitutes—I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the worst thing. Uh, so I, I think it's cool that he is open to change. Ha! I'd make you ride four weeks, you bunch of snowflakes. Um, <laughs> right, chaps. I guess, um, oh, I, sorry, no, go on, Richard. Go on. Well, I was going to say what it, what it kind of makes me wonder is like, what are the what are the kind of like non-negotiables from cycling's 
point of view. You know, the, more, the more we talk about like the idea of a, a sort of a, like a, a league funded by the Saudis or whatever, or reforming the calendar of cycling, like what is the essential part of the sport that we can't change? You know, if you were, uh, do we are we clinging on to something like no substitutions in Grand Tours because of tradition? Um, or is that something that we kind of think is actually essential to what this sport is and what makes it different? I mean, at its heart, it still has to be uh, an endurance sport, doesn't it? I mean, I said, was it last week or the week before, that um, if you were to be hypercritical or pedantic, you would say that it's already changed hugely because stages used to be 320 kilometers long. And Larry, I think you'd agree that, you know, if stages today were 320 kilometers long, you'd get a different kind of race, different kind of rider winning those races. The the sort of the explosive Van der Poels, Pogacars, they're, well, I've used the word already, they are explosive. Their, uh, their level of endurance is similar to the rest of the field, but they can can sprint up a climb or at the end of a, a race in in a different way from the, the majority of other rides in the peloton so the rate so the, the the sport has already changed but i do think that i mean you, you can also mock patrick lefebvre um he's someone who's seen as old-fashioned and um, retrograde in some respects or has been um, depicted in that way but some of the of his comments in reaction to the Unsue proposal um, he talked about a big part of um, your team's success is being resilient being able to switch to a plan B crashing getting sick a part of it um, and, and sort of availability being the best ability um and that's a key sort of selection criteria, isn't it? The the most resilient guy, particularly I'm talking about Grand Tours now, um, should be the winner. Yeah, and I guess like we don't we don't often see or hear the stories of like riders being sick in a, a company or hotel in Provence or something. Like and it's and it's not like anybody really wants that in the sport. But on the other hand those days where it is six degrees and raining in February, um, that's kind of, I think a lot of people would argue that it, that makes up the sport as much as a, a sunny day in July in the Tour de France does. And as soon as you start to take that away, you know, you will, what are you really kind of left with in the sport? Uh, race, racing is like boxing, says Patrick, Patrick Lefebvre. Just because you're hanging on the ropes at a certain moment doesn't mean that you lose the match. We need you hanging on the ropes, Larry, for as long to the bit to the bitter okay. end. I mean, I mean, my, uh, I, I wonder. You know, I, I, I'm completely with you, Larry, in that. Like, I mean, I've kind of exercised my own like extreme weather protocol today because it's like five degrees and hammering it down outside, and I, I don't want to be out in that at all. But I wonder, the more that riders spend time on kind of training camps, uh, certainly going to places where, they could, where they're pretty much guaranteed good weather. Um, do you think that as a whole, maybe the peloton is getting less resilient to those sorts of conditions that you might encounter in Provence in February? Or um, you know, is, that, is that a step too far? I mean, to be honest, I think a huge part of it is also just, you know, your clothing and equipment and stuff. So, you know, I mean, there's only a few brands that really have 
really the highest level, uh, you know, rain gear and stuff. So, you know, that makes a really big difference too. Um, so yeah, other teams could invest in really dialing that in. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't really think, I, I would say almost more like you're probably saving your mental bullets if you're not riding in the rain all the time, you know, uh, because it's mentally fatiguing, but yeah, maybe you do lose a little bit of like, oh, what should I wear today? Because you're not training in five degrees in rain. But I think, you know, it's important to rearrange your training if you have the possibility to, or, you know, to go place warmer places, because like, you're going to be able to train more regularly and more consistently the less time you spend in like terrible conditions, because like, you probably will stay in good health. And over the course of the season, you know, you'll be able to just be more consistent. Um, so, you know, I still think, I, I don't think you should never train in the rain, but, uh, I think, uh, if you can avoid it, it's probably not the worst thing, but yeah, I mean, obviously race is the race and, you know, obviously some days you're going to have to, you're going to have to do it. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I no one is ever going to, there's always going to be someone who's unhappy, right? You know, there's going to be someone who's telling me I'm soft and you know yeah everyone would be dying to do what i'm doing and you know they would go out in the rain and it would be it would be it would be be an interesting experiment though wouldn't it larry to have a sort of david goggins style team principal who one year (laughs) took his team i don't know where would you take your team for a training camp instead of the cost of like the saxo like kilimanjaro camp yeah all those kind of like maybe maybe somewhere like skegness somewhere Somewhere in England in January, like guaranteed of grim weather, that could work. Probably quite yeah, affordable. I think um, Motorola. <laughs> well, the, the the training camps have got gradually they've gone further and further south, haven't they? Um, over the years, and that's partly it's partly been due to climate change to a certain certain extent but there are certain places that used to be very much fixtures in terms of training camps where teams would go that have kind of been wiped off the map like Tuscany for example in Italy but that's also it's also partly due to cheap hotel deals on the Costa Blanca in Spain um, I believe that's one reason why a lot of teams go down there now and um, chaps we should move on and um, talking of the Iberian Peninsula and um, Remco Evenepoel made his debut his 2024 debut at the Figuera Champions Classic um on Saturday I said the race itself was Remco doing Remco things just pretty much obliterating everyone um, winning by 1 minute 48 seconds tacked with 55 kilometers to go Um, not that much of a surprise looking at the field there it was a pretty decent field but no match for Remco and chaps of course this is the start of Remco's build up to the Tour de France he's going to be riding the Tour for the first time People are talking about a big four, Remco, Roglic, Pogacar, Vingegaard. However, it hasn't escaped ours or a lot of people's notice that those four will be going up against each other for the first time in 2024 at the Tour de France, which with everyone or with the the one cycling or Super League project um, being very much on the agenda this winter, a lot of talk about how to make cycling more appealing, more attractive. Um, It it sort of begs the question, is one obvious way in which cycling can make itself more marketable, uh, more sellable, uh, more lucrative, um, to get the, would it be to 
get those guys, big four, the very best riders in the world, racing against each other sort of every week or at least a couple of times a month. Um, before the Figueira Champions Classic on Friday, there was a bit of a press um, audience with Remco. And I thought I'd ask Remco about this. But what I wanted to know was, do the top riders want to race each other every week? Or it, does it suit him to sort of hide his cards before the Tour de France and, and not come up against Pogacar et al um, more regularly? Um, he didn't really answer my question, as you're going to hear. Um, but this is what he did say. Hi, Remco. Um, there's been a lot of talk this winter about the business model of cycling and the fact that you guys, um, so you, Vingegaard, Pogacar, Roglic, you won't race each other until the Tour de France. And, you know, a lot of people say that the way to make cycling more marketable would be for the best riders like you guys to be racing each other more often. Would you like to have more direct confrontations with those guys before the Tour de France? It's a difficult question because, of course, everybody uh, takes a bit of his own uh, goals. And for me, in, uh, in the first part of the season, it's always a bit in function of the Ardennes Classics. But then, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think we for sure we will see each other in Dauphine and then three weeks in the Tour. So it's already quite a long uh, period of time that we, that we will race all together. But, I mean, it's um, uh, also like... like Today this year we'll, we'll focus on on Giro and Tour together, and then you cannot do many races before because otherwise you will be completely out of energy after the Tour. So uh, it just depends on on programs that riders um, want to do. Because of course, uh, for me this season looks a bit different with Paris Nice and uh, some other races. Um, but I can imagine for somebody like Jonas or Primos doing those races already for a few years that they want to do something else. And um, I mean, it's uh, it's a bit more of the personal choices that uh, that brings us together or not. Would you like them to be in Portugal this weekend, though? For example, I mean, is it more stimulating for you when they're there, or is there a part of you that likes to kind of keep that sort of hide a bit of your condition until the big races? No, I think it's always good to have them in uh, the races where. Uh, where I will take uh, the start line. So um, for me, they can uh, they can start everywhere where they want and uh, also everywhere where I will be at the start. But I think it's, uh, it's like I said, you cannot uh, ask from, from a rider um, to take a race because somebody else is there. They have to look at their own programs and uh, preparations and uh, do what they feel best at. Larry, um, that was me trying to extract from Remco whether he wanted to race Pogacar, Vingegaard, Roglic more regularly. Well, we heard there him sort of explaining why they weren't all doing the same races, which we sort of understand. But I wanted to know, did, would they like to? Do you think they, Do you think there's an element of a Pogacar who, I don't know whether it's just a com- competitive animal in each of them, who want to be racing each other regularly or want to know where they're at in relation to each other or do you think that there is a natural kind of caginess which makes them think oh, better, to, better to keep that for July I don't know if like they really care that much to be honest you know I mean if I'm Pogacar I'm like well I'm going to beat him anyway <laughs> do you know what I mean like 
Uh, I would say to me the only guy who I would be less sure of of those four would be like Remco because you know I would say in terms of like you know GC the other guys are probably a step above um whereas like but you know I don't think that makes the racing any less exciting you know for example in the Vuelta last year uh Remco fell out of the race but he probably is the person who made the race the most exciting mm-hmm. you know you know what I mean uh just the way he was riding was so cool so um you know he doesn't need other guys there to make the race exciting and you know i mean i think the only thing that would worry me is if these four guys race together every single week is like what's happening to be four guys you're seeing on tv you know what i mean like uh i mean there's there's nothing else happening in the race because they're just such a level above everyone so um you know there are other people in cycling (laughs) than these guys so it's nice to see, you know. To us, I mean, Larry. To to us, um, Larry. There's the big four, and the rest of you are just podcasters. That's how we think of exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. Well, at least you know we have some other talents. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, I think it's interesting to see some of the young guys stepping up. You know, uh, and seeing them being able to compete with some of these guys. Um, you know, I, I think uh, just because those big four don't necessarily race together all the time. I don't think it makes racing that much less exciting. You know, I think Pogachar alone at a race can still make a race super exciting. It can, uh, it can. You know, I mean... Yeah, it do, it, just in terms of selling the product, though, um, I, I do think yeah. that it would be easier to get people to tune into a tour of the past country if you were billing it. And if, you know, people have always talked about the story, the narrative. Um, for a first-time fan, if you're dropping them in at the Tour of the Basque Country, for example, um, it's difficult to convey what that actually means, where that fits in, if there are, there is only one of those riders there, or if there are two of those riders there. Um, and and it's quite unusual in you know in sports like take take skiing or tennis, slightly different. Um, okay, things there do tend to revolve around the Grand Slams, but in most sports. In the sort of gold standard series, um, well, that, that is the gold standard series of events because the best guys are there. In in but, cycling, there's only one of those events. Yeah, but if you're a first-time fan, I mean, you don't know who is who, right? So does it really matter? That's, that's what I wonder. Mm. You know I mean? Does it really matter that all the four best guys are there? Because you don't know who any of them are. So maybe the race can still be exciting without those guys there um, or with only one of those guys there. You know I mean? I think until we really build these characters for those people, you know, like, so say this Netflix series, uh, if we can really build these star characters, then yeah, it makes it more exciting. But like, I mean, if all we see is the way they race and we don't really know anything else about them, um, unless you really know your cycling, I mean, I don't think it matters that much, uh, who's who almost, do you know what I mean? Larry, we're going to move on, but just, uh, since you mentioned it a couple of minutes ago, the Vuelta, last year's Vuelta, um, people will obviously talk about that when they start thinking about Remco's chances of winning his first Tour de France or, or well, finishing on the podium, he said on Friday, would be a dream for him to finish on the podium at this year's Tour de France. Um, the, the, the sort of infamous stage, as far as he was concerned, the stage to the Tourmalet, People will say that that stage exemplified 
the fact that he is going to struggle on long climbs and in the really high mountains. However, he really started to struggle that day before you even got to the long climbs. He, he struggled at the bottom of the obisk was where he got dropped. Um, and he was sort of... We'll say two-thirds of the way Two-thirds of the way yeah. out, okay. So he was kind of out, <laughs> out of the race um, for GC. Way before he should have been. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that... Would you... You were in that race in the world. So would you read much into that and w would you see that day as justification for sort of excluding Remco from the, the the real sort of top favorites for the Tour de France no no I mean I definitely still see him as a top favorite you know I think unless you're in his team or in his camp you have no idea I mean I don't know maybe he had like a small stomach bug maybe you know I mean it was super hot that day you know, you really don't know the little details. So maybe there was some small detail that like just messed him up because obviously it wasn't like he just all of a sudden went downhill because the way he performed the rest of the Welta, like he obviously was doing just fine. You know, um, he had a bad day, but there are so many tiny factors that could go into that. You know, maybe he didn't eat enough like the day before. Maybe, you know, maybe he was like, you know, I mean, you really don't know. It could have been something even he didn't realize, you know, like, uh, that he just messed up or maybe he slept shit the night before, or, you know, like there are so many tiny details that go into performance and, you know, day after day after day in a grand tour, it's like, yeah, it's really hard to say unless you're really close to him. Right. So, I, I mean, without a doubt, I'd never rule him out. Um, because, you know, I, I think he's an insane talent and to me, he has, every possible, you know, he could go and win the Tour de France, uh, even this year. So, um, you know, one day, yeah, anyone can have a bad day. Um, you know, Pogacar, like, for example, in the tour, not this past year, but the year before, the, the one day he just fully exploded, he made a few mistakes and mm. boom, he had a bad day and he lost the race. Right. So, um, I just think it can happen, uh, for, there are a million variables that go into performance, um, especially in the Grand Tour. And yeah, maybe just like something went wrong and that was what led him to have that day. But um, I wouldn't mean, I wouldn't take that as like ruling him out for uh, ever doing GC in the Grand Tour. Warbass backs Remco for Tour Triumph. Boom. Tomorrow's <laughs> headline. Well... Gentlemen, we're going to finish today's episode by talking about a couple of exotic stage races. One in the past, um, one in the future. Stage races in far-flung places. The Tour of Colombia, the Vuelta Colombia, made its return after... How long had it been... Um, how long was the hiatus, the absence? Was it one or two years that it hadn't been organised? Anyway, it came back in fine style... Uh, last week won by Rodrigo Contreras as we mentioned in the news roundup but the result that will have caught a lot of people's eye and attention um, was the stage win single stage win for Astana's Astana Kazakhstan's Mark Cavendish um, Cavendish of course is going for his 35th Tour de France stage win will be in the summer Cavendish won in Zipakira um, which is a birthplace to Egan Bernal, and that capped well, what looked to be, chaps, from the outside, a pretty fruitful séjour for the Astana Kazakh 
Kazakhstan team in Colombia. They had spent about three weeks in Colombia doing altitude training camp and then racing the Vuelta a Colombia. Um, sort of overseeing the whole operation was their head of performance, their new head of performance, who's joined them this year from Sudal Quickstep, Vasilis Anastopoulos. Um, you've heard his voice on the podcast before. And well, on his return to Europe from Colombia, I spoke to Vasi about the team's stay in Colombia and also Cavendish's performances over there and what they tell us about what's going to happen in July. Here is Vasilis Anastopoulos. This year, uh, I think he has to be in a top shape for Tour de France. There are a lot of young uh, sprinters coming, the stages are hard. As we can see year by year, the average speed of the peloton is increasing. So he doesn't need to be only fast, but he needs to be in, uh, in excellent uh, physical condition. That's why he had some experience in the past with uh, altitude. Uh, that's why uh, we decided already from early on the season, uh, like September, October, to, to do an altitude camp and uh, try to see how he responds. Uh, and uh, we decided that the best uh, place to do it was uh, Colombia because of the mild weather and uh, uh, of the flat uh, parts over there where he could train uh, without killing his legs as he would do if he was going to Teide. Uh, that's why we decided to go. We went one, one week in uh, Medellin Rio Negro, which is 2,100 meters altitude. Mm. And then two weeks in uh, Paipa area, which is uh, 2,500 meters altitude. Uh, the tour of Colombia came uh, as a bonus, I, I would say, uh, because when we planned the trip and the training camp, uh, the tour of Colombia was not uh, was not announced yet. So after the tour of Colombia was announced, we find this an excellent opportunity to bring uh, almost the whole lead out train there, to train all together, to do some uh, uh, sprints, some lead out sessions, to practice a little bit uh, our strategy for the race. And uh, at the end, that's what we did. We had two opportunities uh, for sprints. He won one of those two. He was third at the first one. And uh, to be honest with you, the first one was a really good lesson for us because we had the opportunity to analyze the stage, uh, to notify the mistakes the guys did. And then uh, we tried to make it uh, as best as possible on the fourth stage, on the third stage, where, uh, which he won. Uh, so now we have some conclusions and some data to compare for, uh, for the upcoming races. Of course, we missed uh, Ballerini because he had to stay in Europe because of a small injury head. Mm -hmm. So had to use uh, the other guys, Teada and uh, Lutsenko in the train. But uh, I think the the outcome was was good for us. It was a positive one. Um, so a couple of questions on that, um, Vazi. Altitude camps in Colombia. It's obviously something that the Colombian riders are well. They're familiar with, but. Um, in terms of information gathering before you went, making sure that the, the the routes were good and safe as well, because we've heard about you know it can be can be quite dangerous at times. 
riding training in Colombia. No. I mean, did you did you have to do much? And and one who helped you um, in sort of planning the whole trip? Yeah, of course. I have been gathering in for the last uh, three years because a lot of uh, my ex riders in Quickstep uh, are doing camps in Colombia, like uh, Fausto Masnada, Jan Hirt, uh, Honore, where they are also now in uh, Rio Negro. Mm. So I was uh, last two years I was in contact uh, with them. I was gathering all the info. Uh, I was following them training, of course, because I was the trainer in uh, Quickstep. So I had an idea about the the routes and the roads and uh, the circumstances there. And of course, uh, Giovanni Lobardi, who was appointed as the uh, from the organizer of Tour of Colombia as uh, the person to to organize uh, the European teams, uh, you know, logistics and yeah. everything was a huge uh, help to us because he found the hotels. Uh, everybody says that Colombia is dangerous. I didn't feel any time uh, any danger in there, even though uh, we were provided by police escort uh, every day on the rides. Okay. But uh, I never felt that I was in danger at any point. Mm. And we stayed there for uh, four weeks in total. And so I, I, we had done some homework before we go there regarding yeah. the, the routes and everything. Um, Mark made some jokes on social media or in press conferences about not being able to breathe. Um, how did he <laughs> react? How did he take to the high altitude from a physiological point of view? Yeah, it's it's true that the first two weeks he was uh, suffering from the altitude. That's why he had to modify a little bit his uh, training. But uh, last uh, the third week he was getting better and better. And uh, the week of the race uh, he was feeling uh, he was feeling okay. Obviously, the disadvantage uh, that the European riders have compared to Colombians it's it's very big because uh, even though most of the guys were uh, well acclimatized, uh, he cannot reach the, uh, the level of the Colombian riders who are mm-hmm. born in 2,500-3,000 meters, of course. That's why uh, top 10 uh, riders in GC were only Colombians. But uh, I think uh, everybody performed well. Uh, we had all some really good results and uh, now they are just ready to start the season. We'll see from next week on how they will perform, but... Uh, uh, we had some uh, really nice feedback from the riders. And generally, Vasi, as you know, it's been important in Mark's career that he's he's had good winters. I mean, generally, when he's had good winters, it's meant a good season. Um, generally, overall, how would you say he has dealt with the last four or five months and, and what kind of condition is he coming out of the winter in? Uh, I think it was the first race that he won after a long time uh, so early in the season like mm-hmm. the beginning of February uh, his weight is, uh, is on the point he had uh, a good winter that's why we did a lot of training camps with the team for example we started with a two week training camp in uh, December then I had, we had another one 10 days training camp in January before we fly to Colombia so uh, he was constantly on training camps uh, till now so I think he's on the point where I want him to be. He's in a relatively good shape to start the season. 
Okay. Um, and just on the train, Vasi, so in the, on the day that Mark won, there was a bit of a change because I think Morkov had done a lot of work on the climb or after the climb before that. So I think you changed position yeah. with Case Bowl and Morkov. Um, some people looked at that, watched it and thought, ah, oh, is that something that m- they might adopt permanently? Because Morkov obviously is getting a bit older. He still has the experience, the positioning, maybe not quite as fast as he was. Um, should we read anything into that or was that just a temporary solution? No, no, no. It was just uh, just for that day because before the climb started, uh, Morkov had a flat tire. Mm. So he was chasing back, uh, and then there was a split in the peloton because of the echelons. Uh, Mark found himself with Kaviria and some other guys on the last part of the, of the peloton, the third group. Morky was there, so he had to chase for uh, almost 70 k's mm. with the other guys to come back, and then he felt that he wasn't fresh anymore, so he communicated immediately with Case Ball, who was already on the first part of the peloton. And he was really, really fresh because he hadn't done almost anything the whole day. Mm. Uh, so it was just a temp- temporary uh, decision, and it was really wise from uh, from Morkov. I think that at that point he showed his uh, leadership and his uh, professionalism because he admitted that he was not fresh anymore. So immediately he discussed with Case Ball to change positions on the train. Mm. And uh, so Case did the, the last lead out. Okay. But that's not something that we're going to see again under normal circumstances Okay. Uh, the next races. Okay. And um, Vasi, just finally, talk to me a bit about the, the sort of off-the-bike experience in Colombia. It looks as though you were having a, good t- a pretty good time over there, all of you. Um, lots of games of Uno for the riders. Um, it was an in- <laughs> inter- interesting group. Um, Cav and Morkov, very experienced, obviously, predominantly English-speaking riders with the Colombians, with Tejas and um, the other Colombians but to what what were some of your highlights of the trip um, sort of culturally and from a sort of human perspective uh, first of all Colombia is a fantastic place people are also friendly so humble. they are really really big fans of cycling uh, I don't need to say that uh, especially Mark was uh, <laughs> a big attraction wherever we, we, we were going <laughs> Either during the rides or in the coffee stops, uh, people were coming there for autographs. It was a bit chaotic, especially during the race. But uh, apart from that, uh, we didn't have any problem. We really enjoyed our time in Colombia. And uh, it became a tradition uh, for us to play Uno every night. So for the last two weeks, we had a, a Uno tournament every night. And that I think uh, it was really crucial bringing the, as you said, the European guys with the Colombian guys together and uh, create a really good bond and a really good uh, atmosphere in the team. So I think that's something that we're going to continue for the rest of the season. Mark can be very competitive, as we know, even when it comes to things like Uno. Um, I hope, <laughs> yeah, I hope he behaved himself. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, he lost some time, so he didn't take it so well, but it was good fun. <laughs> it was good fun. Okay, great stuff. And, and just lastly, Vasi, just remind us of his race program um, over the next couple of months. UAE Tour next, is that right? Yeah, UAE Tour. Uh, then it's uh, Tirreno, uh, Milan-Torino. Then we have the Belgian uh, one-day races. Uh, he finished his uh, program with Shell Price, then uh, a small break, a training camp in Greece for two weeks, uh, Tour of Hungary, 
en Altitude Camp en Sierra Nevada, uh, Tour de Suisse o ZLM Tour, depending on the stages of the Tour de Suisse, we just expect uh, for the announcement of the stages, and then Tour de France. Larry, Cavendish winning in Colombia, encouraging start to the season, isn't it? Um, it was interesting to see his lead-out train working there. There was a bit of chopping and changing, um, Morku moving positions on the day when Cavendish won and Case Bowl doing the final lead-out. But, um, yeah, very ex- they're, they're a very experienced outfit, or they will be at the Tour de France, but um, encouraging, as I said. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think... Uh it's like everyone kind of wants to write off Cavendish with his age, everything like that. But, uh, I think he's someone that you can never write off, you know, and, um, to see that he's still winning and yeah, he was winning so early and, you know, against a guy like Gaviria, it's not like there wasn't anyone there. So, um, on top of that at altitude, which is not exactly, uh, necessarily his specialty. So, um, yeah, I think it's really encouraging and it, yeah, it gets me excited for the Tour de France cause I'd love to see him, uh, break, break the record i said chaps that we would end today's episode talking about two exotic stage races and the other one in the future um which is going to start on the 18th of february is the tour of rwanda Um, a lot of races taking place in the next few days tour of rwanda is not the one that will get the most attention but i thought it'd be interesting for us to discuss it for a couple of reasons today in the podcast and one of those reasons is that a rider we featured a few weeks ago skabu Germay, who is who he was the first Ethiopian to ride the Tour de France and rode for nine seasons in the World Tour last of those seasons with Jaco Alula. Um, well, we heard from him a few weeks ago when he his contract hadn't been renewed with Jaco Alula and he was very much hoping, dreaming, praying that he was going to be picked up by another World Tour team and be able to continue his career. Um, unfortunately for Scarbu, he wasn't able to get a contract for 2024. And, uh, well, shortly thereafter, around about um, New Year time, he announced that he was going to end his professional career. However... Um, he was going to ride one last race and that last race was going to be the Tour of Rwanda and this would complete a sort of symbolic journey for Scarbu because it was the first UCI race he ever rode in 2010 um, he was riding them for the UCI's World Cycling Centre team he was fifth on general classification and the opportunity presented itself for him to ride for the same team the UCI World Cycling Centre in this year's race and as I said that will be his last race as a professional cyclist Uh, last week chaps Scarby was already in Randa preparing for the race with his new teammates or teammates for those 10 days of the Tour of Rwanda and I spoke to him just about the emotional journey that he's been on over the last few months um, as he realised that his dream of well his dream of winning a Tour de France stage was his ultimate dream was fading and um, he would have to resign himself to the end of what has been a, a glorious professional cycling career nonetheless here's Scarbu speaking to me last week 
So it wasn't easy, especially for me, just to quit because I had 12 years in my career, but some of the beginning of the year was, I, I, I said to myself, I was so lucky to survive on that kind of years when I was young because I was doing a lot of mistakes. So this was the last years of my career. I was really uh, trying to fix everything and do right. So just to stop and to force it to stop out of contract, it wasn't really easy because also I was really try my best to be a domestic and to give everything to my teammates and to help and always there. I think people see it like from TV, the way I race and everything. I was giving 110% to the team. So at the end, I ended up out of contract. So the feeling, it's just so hard unless you are inside to to feel uh, just to quit, you know, to have that jump just like before you have goals and motivation, you just want to keep going and everything. You do everything right just to stop and doing nothing it's it's uh, i don't wish to any cyclist to tell you honestly it's 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 so hard but i yeah uh, i love always looking forward and I, I i try to fight to myself always okay it's not more what i wanted it's happened to me so what i can do and i learn a lot from it and i try to even to say to other cyclists please please, please just look where you're going and just retire by yourself or to plan a ride with some cyclists, I said them, it's the worst thing it can happen because it destroys it destroys everything because I was the guy that I was really proud and I just, so many things, I achieved so many things for my country and for myself and I was a, one of the first African cyclists to be in a World Tour team. I kind of lost the appreciation like what I did really because I wasn't finished it the thing I wanted to do, you know, uh, but it comes up slowly when I realize like people send me message and so many people like what I did and I, they appreciate and it's it kind of coming back, but I wish I just <laughs> finish it by myself and everything did it not this way. So it's it's hard in my situation. I think it's hard uh, to accept really. The message I received from so many people, like what I have achieved and what I, what, what the, like the, the feedback was it's 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 insane even if like from my country from outside of my country and it's there is so many messages i have received and i i wasn't really ex uh, yeah, yeah expecting to do that and when i spoke to people like it's it's great you know it's like i at least you know it's it's like kind of there is my teammate was sending me a message at least you know how to race uh, elise you know and it was like this this kind of messages it just makes you so proud and you know what I did three times through the France it's just when you look back it just it just there's so many things that pushes you and makes you to appreciate but also yeah you you need time for like you're right it's a, it's a process and I try to spoke to a lot of others uh, that are retired I hear the worst things so I kind of I will say I'm doing actually well because I have already looking to do something and I have a lot of goals and I I, I pick up I don't know it's I'm I'm actually I'm okay because just the hardest thing is for me was just I have a lot of questions that's why why happened this just because of the force to retire but the, the moment I remember to go back and to appreciate myself and my career I think I I'm really proud of and uh, it's it's what I achieved it's I think. When I look back and how long I come, it just, it just, yeah, I am proud of all that, really. Yeah, and uh, that makes me happy, really. So, chaps, uh, that was Skarbu Gamay talking about, well, and the difficulty of accepting that it was time for him to retire. Um, Skarbu is going to carry on racing, I should stress, just not as a professional and not on the road. Um, he has actually been signed up by a really interesting team called the Amani Project or Team Amani. 
Um, they are, well, they describe themselves as a motley crew of the best riders from Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda and brought together to compete in the biggest gravel races on the planet. Um, really interesting project that is. Look it up. Um, Scarboo's going to ride a series of races in the mainly in the Girona sort of Catalonia environs over the next few months but he's certainly very motivated by that challenge he doesn't know where it's going to lead yet um as we know there are quite a lot of ex-road professionals who are well making a pretty good living out of the gravel scene now and um, pursuing big ambitions in gravel Scarbu doesn't know whether these first few races are going to take him in that direction but he's certainly very motivated and um, well we look forward to following him and team Amani over the next few months but chaps, uh, Tour of Aranda, Larry, don't think you've ever ridden the Tour of Aranda, have you? I have not, no. no. Who knows, Larry, maybe you'll be riding the World Championships yeah, in that's Rwanda awesome. yeah. in 2025, because of course, that is where they will take place. It will be the first ever cycling World Championships to take place in Africa, in the on the continent of Africa. And, well, it will not be without it's controversy um, because Rwanda is well governed by a, a controversial leader, Paul Kagame. There have been uh, lots of allegations over the last few years of sports washing in particular um, due to Rwanda's association with, well, um, my beloved Arsenal Football Club. They sponsor them. Um, the NBA launched a project in Africa, the Basketball Africa League in 2021. That was launched in Rwanda, as I say, May 2021. Um, they hosted the FIFA General Assembly in 2023. So as I say, um, various... Um, allegations of sports washing against the backdrop of or leveled at a a regime that certainly come under or come in for scrutiny from the likes of Amnesty International and other human rights organisations. Richard, you have been doing some reading for us about Rwanda and cycling in Rwanda and all things Rwanda, in fact, um, Mm. haven't you? Can I I lead you off on a a slight tangent to begin with, with a question? Yes. Um, if you had to guess how many gorillas live in Rwanda, what would be gorillas your... with an this O? Is going... or are you... is gorillas <laughs> yeah. with an O. Not it's with an O. Yeah. Gor- yes. <laughs> Let's not go there. Yeah, gorillas with an O. Is it more or less than? Is it more or less than the province of Hayen has olive trees? Oh, I considerably think it's less than the sixty considerably million olive trees in Hayen. Yes. Um, I, I have no idea. Five hundred. 500, I was going to say like a million, I don't know. No, Daniel's Daniel's closer, I'm afraid. It's about 700. That's in Rwanda? Is that in Rwanda? Well, I mean, they don't sort of tend to stick to national borders, (laughs) I think, gorillas. Well, I also read, I had no idea how big (laughs) Rwanda was. Um, I read earlier today, doing a little bit of preparation for this episode, Richard, that it's slightly bigger than Sicily, Rwanda, apparently. I, I... Based on, you mentioned Youthquake, the book, uh, an episode or two ago, but um, I sort of started reading around there and, and it it's it always amazes me how big Africa as a continent is and, and how a small country, what looks like a really tiny country like Rwanda is actually, yeah, it, a lot bigger than you think. Um, but anyway, there's, a, there's about 700 or so gorillas. This does have a bit of an tangential link back to cycling because 
one of the biggest um, industries and growth industries in Rwanda is tourism. And a significant part of that is guerrilla tourism. People go and trek to see these mountain gorillas where, um, is it Diane Fossey and Gorillas in the Mist was up around there, these sort of spectacular animals. They only issue 96 permits a day to go and see gorillas. So as a tourist activity, it's pretty limited. And there's a lot of talk in Rwanda and, and there was a World Bank report about this basically saying that one of the biggest areas for Rwanda to develop and grow was nature-based tourism. And a big part of that is biking and getting people to come and um, go on cycling trips, essentially, in in Rwanda. There is already a gravel race. You you mentioned the Amani team, Daniel. I can't remember. It might just be called the Tour of Rwanda. I can't remember what it's... But it's a sort of ultra-endurance gravel race. So it's not just road racing that's developing in Rwanda, but... I think, like with a lot of sporting events, you, you kind of come down to this question of, of, are we talking about a political project or are we talking about a, sport, a sporting thing? And I think in this case, it, like, it undoubtedly is a political project as to why the World Championships are in Rwanda. Um, you've talked there about the president, Paul Kagame, and, and issues around sports washing and so on. Um, I mean, it needs to be said that the sport of cycling and it's um, kind of the powers that be within the sport, the UCI doing quite well out of the the prestige of hosting the world championships in Africa for the first time. Um, ASO and Golazzo, uh, French and Belgian companies respectively are organizing it on behalf of the Rwandan cycling federation. So they're obviously beneficiaries. Um, But I guess the question that I was wondering and trying to answer is like, what, what impact will this have on, cycling in Rwanda by having the world championships there. And I think Rwanda's not, it's what well, it, it isn't the best um, performing African nation in terms of the world tour. It doesn't currently have any world tour riders in the men's or women's peloton. Um, but I guess what it, what it sort of makes me wonder is how are we going to see a big uptick in cycling in Rwanda as a result of the world championships there. Is it going to be something a bit like maybe Qatar when the world went there in 2016, which didn't really have any sort of impact on cycling as an activity or as a sport in Qatar? Um, Or is this something that's going to sort of catalyze or kickstart cycling in Rwanda and help it step up again? I mean, there are things, there are things going on. And I think from what it, it, it looks like the, the main focus at the moment is on junior riders in Rwanda with the goal of them having having good rides at the Worlds in 2025 in the junior ranks, but then sort of starting a uh, like a wave of, of young riders that are going to be able to ride the sort of the interest in, in cycling that a World Championships might bring. Um, and again, like we, you talked about it with um, Brian and Rob last week, I think, about the, the decline of cycling in the UK contrasted with the fact that there are uh, like sort of record or near record numbers of British riders in the top levels of the sport. And those are all riders who got interested in the sport. They would have been like between eight and 11, say, Mm. when the London Olympics took place and when Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France. It wasn't quite a world's happening in the UK, but 
similar kind of focus on big scale events. And, and I almost wonder whether we're actually going to see the impact of this in like 10, 12 years time, where there are kids that are, go out and watch or come across a big event like the World Championships, hear about it, get interested in it. Um, and then in a decade or so, they're going to be becoming yeah. very good at riding bikes. M- my instinct about this, and I think Brian disputed this last week or he um, he had a different point of view, but I think as a, as a catalyst, an individual, an individual experiencing and giving a, a nation in particular great success is the most powerful or catalyst that that is my has always been my impression um it was certainly the case in germany with eric zabel and jan Ulrich, and it was the case in the uk i feel to a large extent with cavendish and wiggins and so on and so forth and um yeah you can apply this to lots of different sports and lots of different nations as well rather than the single event or even series of events legacy events for example um i think you know that they have their place the tour de yorkshire was mired in all sorts of other problems in the end but as a legacy project it was actually a decent idea but i do feel that individuals are an individual success might not be the answer we we like to hear but it is the most powerful um incentive yeah, I 100% agree with that, actually. You know, I think, like, I mean, probably my generation, the reason we're all in cycling was probably because of Lance, you know. I mean, he brought it to, like, such a big level in the U.S. And, like, you know, I think it is almost like people need stars to to follow. And that's what gets them excited and motivated in a sport. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the events per se, but more, yeah, the individuals themselves. But, but yeah. Are you just angling for an appearance on his podcast? Is that do you, do you need that to complete the set? <laughs> no, I'd, the big, the big four. That's the real big. That. That's you, the that's the real big four, isn't it? Bobby and Yen. Did you ever have those um, I Spy books growing up? You know where you have to go around with your little book and tick off what you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Larry's going for the grand slam of exactly. podcast appearances. I Spy, Yens, Yens and Bobby, po- Garrett Thomas, Lance Armstrong, the cycling podcast. Um, well chaps we will try we're already having a hard enough job following all the racing that's going on via traditional conventional multimedia means um, but we will try to keep our eye on events in Rwanda and hope um, Scarbu has a good 10 days there Um, he says he's not on his best form but he's certainly been riding his bike training he's also been doing quite a bit of running Um, also wanted to mention about Rwanda the Land of Second Chances by Tim Lewis is a fantastic book about the, the, a, a team that was launched in Rwanda. Uh, it would be interesting, actually, to have a bit of an update on that story and to find out sort of what became some of the protagonists in that book. But I um, thoroughly recommend that. The Land of Second Chances. Well, chaps, I think that just about concludes this week's episode. We will, of course, be back next week. Next week, we'll already be in classics mode. Um, There'll be a lot of stage racing still to talk about, likes of the uh, Algarve starting this week and Teo Gagenhart starting his season there, um, among others, um, various other 
um, big names in action over the next few weeks. So we'll be talking about that, but we'll also be looking ahead to the Cobble Classics, the start of the Cobble Classics, um, Omloop, Het Newsblad, Kuna, Brussels, Kuna. And before Omloop, Het Newsblad, instantly, um, friends of the cycling podcast, um, you should know that we will be communicating the week before Omloop about how we're going to start our season, our friends of the podcast program schedule of events for 2024 so look out for that that will be on social media and well email possibly we'll be communicating with you and in the episode as well of course um chaps in the meantime i think that is just about all from us um larry what's your next race i'm gonna wish you best of luck for that yeah so i race this weekend i do uh classic var and then uh tour maritime so um yeah a few races coming up best of luck with that no Thanks. complaining about the cold weather no it looks actually good uh, don't worry i check the, the forecast sunny and nice. slightly chill slightly chilly weather and the light drizzle so, yeah i will be attending you know i'm not gonna sit this one out so uh, no best of luck with that Larry and um, well we'll be we'll be seeing you somewhere in person I think in the next few weeks um, I was hoping you'd be doing Paris-Nice because you were down as a reserve for Paris-Nice you told me that you're probably going to be doing Tireno Adriatico instead um, but we'll we'll be seeing you somewhere and um, Richard I think you'll be back next week that's right yeah. um, before I sign off the, the results are in for the Instagram oh go on um on on the podium, third place, Hog, one point four million, followed by Peter Sagan in second, one point nine million, and Rigo, top. Wow, 2. 3. Yeah, Cavendish, nowhere. Uh, oh, didn't quite, uh, didn't check Cavendish. Let's have a look. Might be one point something, possibly. This is making for great podcast. Yeah, eight let eight hundred thousand. Oh, eight hundred thousand. There we go. Okay. The final podium Lower. is in. Rigoberto Uran, world champion Instagram. Do you get a rainbow? Will you get an honorary rainbow jersey for that with the Instagram icon? Uh, like on a, the front maybe an NFT retires? rainbow jersey or something digital. And from the Instagram rabbit hole, that's enough. That's all from us. Sorry, I should say. Thank you, chaps. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett.